Thank you, Vivian. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 1 to 13. Um, has everybody got it? Anybody following along? Um, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer in grief all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressive inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Well, can I say, first of all, it's always good to meet with God's people to know how big the family is. And uh, thank you very much. I remember last year with great affection uh, the weekend that we had together at the church. And uh, I was uh, very pleased to... Scott invited me back to be able to come and share this weekend with you. And what I want to do this weekend for us is to get through a whole letter. Quite often... One of our problems is we sort of read so far and we have some general part view of things. And this is a great letter that's been written and uh, it's teaching us something very important uh, in terms of what the true grace of God is. So let's bow our heads in prayer and then we'll begin uh, this first on the series, Focus on the Future. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our instruction. And Father, we pray that as we gather this weekend, that we may grow in understanding of your word and the transforming effect it can have on our lives. And we thank you that the Spirit who caused these words to be written through your servant Peter, the Apostle, is the same Spirit who dwells in our hearts and minds. And therefore we pray that we may have light from him. If any dark recesses in our hearts, we pray, might receive the light of your word. As we go forward into this coming week, and as the church continue to grow and develop, we pray, Father, we may become an effective instrument, a great light in the midst of so much terrible darkness, that, Father, the light would shine and people would see the great salvation that you brought. This is our prayer for this weekend, that we may indeed be equipped as a congregation of your people uh, to go forth into the world into these coming weeks. And we pray this for Christ's sake. <coughs> Amen. I'm sorry about my throat, but I have to tell you that I was travelling back to Brisbane and there's a person from New South Wales, definitely had to be from New South Wales, who's coughing all over me. <coughs> 
about a month ago, and as a result, I've had antibiotics and cortisone, goodness knows what. Uh, but I just pray that it will hold my throat uh, for this weekend. But never mind, uh, we don't hold it against it with the New South Wales. <coughs> I thought it was gin and tonic for a while. I've been quite excited. <coughs> it wasn't that at all, actually. I smelled it. But thank you very much for the thought. That's what counts, even if the gin isn't there. Or the tonic, okay. <coughs> That's the afternoon fix. Okay, right. <coughs> now, one of the important questions we need to ask, and it's quite interesting in the New Testament, if you go to the end of a letter, you often discover why it's been written. And that's very important for us to see, to get the big picture to start with, and then just to realise how you get to the end. We know that uh, when Paul is writing to Corinthians, we know at the end what is the purpose of his writing. He tells them to come together, to be united, to be loving people, and if that is the case, the God of love and peace will be with you. So it's always good, it was an te ancient technique that often we put at the end the reason why you've written the letter as a summary. And that's true also in other letters. And if you turn to the end of 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 5, Peter tells us why he's written this letter. And he says in verse 12, uh, Silvanus, who was the, the shorthand writer, because they used shorthand in those days to take this down, by Silvanus, he says, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written to you briefly. So it's only a short letter that Peter has written. And he says, the purpose of his writing is twofold, exhorting you and also declaring to you that this is the true grace of God and you must stand in it. And Peter is writing this because there are people who believe that the grace of God is a swipe card for heaven. And that's all that it is. But Peter wants to sort of make it very clear that's not the true grace of God. And so this letter is a very important letter for us. It was needed in the first century because the first generations of Christians, some got it wrong in all the provinces of all the churches in Turkey, if that's where it's written to, and they hadn't got the full story. And therefore, Peter wants to go back and very, as it were, in a very summarized way, he wants to say that this is what I'm doing. I'm exhorting and I'm declaring to you what the true grace of God is. And so the opening part of the letter is about declaring the true grace of God. And then Peter goes on to give the exhortations as to what the implications are uh, for individual Christians and for the church as a whole. Now I've called this cro crocodile Christianity and I've called it that because crocodiles have monocular vision. They can look at two places at the same time. And Peter's view is that Christians have to develop this what is called a foci, the capacity to look in two directions at the same time. A very important focus that it begins with and then a focus that is not about us, but a very different sort of focus as to how we are to live. So it's not Australian Christianity, uh, Crocodile Dundee, anything like that. But what it's meant to be is developing this, this what we call monocular vision, this capacity of certain of God's creation to be able to focus in two places at the same time. And that's why I don't, don't mess with crocodiles or anything like that. But they can see the whole lot. And Peter is concerned that Christians should be able to see the whole lot and just not have one focus. So it is about the true grace of God that is, at, is, is what Peter is going to write about. And this morning, and, and sorry, the declaration is, you must stand in the true grace because there is a counterfeit. There is a, we're a half story. And that's what Peter's command is, you must stand in this. So he's very kindly summarised the whole thing for us. And therefore I want us to go back, first of all, to look about the question of the first focus that the Christian person must have. And what is very interesting is the way in which Peter says 
that we are who we are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are who we are through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience. And thirdly, we are who we are through the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus. And here is the work of Father, Spirit and Son on the whole question of our salvation. This is God the Father, Son working together. And when a person becomes a Christian, this is the work of the triune God. And Peter wants us to understand that very clearly, the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, the work of the Son. And that is the sort of the worst summary, because Peter's good at giving us this summary at the beginning. And now he's going to talk to us about the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit in what follows in, uh, in verse 3 onwards. So it's good to sort of see where it's all going. <coughs> I always like to do that. Uh, when my wife's giving directions, I like that to see where I'm going. And the directions are clear. Well, Peter's giving us very clear directions here. And he wants us to understand that this is so important. And that's why when a person becomes a Christian, we should give thanks to Father, Son, and Spirit. Because this is a combined work that's been achieved. Let's look at what Peter says to us in the opening part. In verse 3, because it is a great opening, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has rebirthed us, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that will not pass away, that is reserved in heaven for us, who are being kept by the power of God for this great moment, for this great revelation, for this great salvation. It's a wonderful benediction, a wonderful blessing of God. The Jewish people had 18 benedictions. They had to recite three times a day. This would be a good benediction for us to recite once a day in which we bless God because this, uh, this opening sentence is just packed full of great Christian truth about the whole question of our future. Because he blesses the God and Father, because according to God's great mercy, it's God's great mercy that people who have spat in God's face as rebels and raised their fists against him, that God himself is a God who, according to his great mercy, has done what he has done. None have earned it. We are all, as it were, prisoners in the dock. We're guilty. Sentence should be passed. Sentence is passed. We know. How does the prisoner plead? Guilty. And what is it? That God has exercised a great moment of clemency in his, in his great sovereign way and he's declared us that through his great mercy he has begotten us again. The word is rebirthed us. And that's very important for the Christian person. We are twice born people. That's why when the Da Vinci Code nonsense is going on, I said, of course, Jesus had children. We've never denied he's had children. That's a nonsense to say he hasn't had children. Imagine everyone's looking at what's happening to this poor old principal of college. <coughs> he's gone mad. I said, I'm one of his children. Because I've been born from above, it gave a chance to talk about the nature of the gospel. Because I don't use the word born again because some people get excited about that. So I use the word twice born, and they feel quite happy with that. At least uh, because of the reputation of being you know, born again Christians. Because we have been rebirthed. And we've re been rebirthed to a living hope. You see, there are lots of people in the whole world of the religious world who hope that things might be okay. They've got this sort of thought that it would be good. And that's why in Islam, there are the five pillars of Islam, and people who practice them, they hope, maybe, that they might get into heaven. But they can't be sure unless, of course, they die in a holy war as a martyr. And there's this, this sense of total uncertainty. In Hinduism, 
That's the same issue, the uncertainty about the whole question of future in Buddhism. You might come back as sort of an adult. It's, it's, this whole question, there's no sense that the hope is, is a certain and secure hope. And for the Christian, the word hope means the question of certainty about the future. And this is a living hope. Why? Because it is a living law. Jesus has been resurrected. And his, his resurrection is a proof of our resurrection. That's the guarantee. And that's why he said, I am the resurrection of life. The one who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so the Christian has, as he focuses on the future, it's not with fear, but it's with this quiet sense of confidence. Because if we know the future is taken care of, that really makes a great deal of difference how we live in the present. And so Peter says, this is what has happened. We've been rebirthed to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And what is its direction? Because he now goes on in the verse ancient language, to talk about that direction. What's the direction? It's to inheritance. We've been raised for inheritance. And the good thing about our inheritance, unlike superannuation funds and things like this, that it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's also unfading, it's reserved in heaven for us. And this is the great thing about the Christian faith. God has an apartment for you. Jesus said, I'm going away to prepare a place. It's got your name on it. There'll be no need in the uh, heavenly newspaper to publish a, a column called Unclaimed Inheritances. And isn't that wonderful? There is a place that God has for you. Jesus has gone to prepare it. And therefore, this is a great inheritance and it needs no upkeep. That really appeals to me because my wife keeps telling me about upkeep and things like this, things I don't get done. It's a perfect place. Absolutely, an inheritance that is going to last forever, inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled and unfading. And what's more, it's being kept for you. Okay? God has a place for you in the future. That is being kept for you. And it's being and, and what is more, not only is God keeping that for you, but God is keeping you for that. Look what it says in the verse there. You who by the power of God are being guarded through self through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, you can't get anything more certain than that. God has got it. Your name's on it. God has got you, and there's no way that God himself is not going to get you to the place that he's got for you. And that's why the Christian person has this sense of, we bless God for this, because we never earned it. We're not sort of trying to get air miles for that journey doing good or doing other sorts of things like that, or works of satisfaction. We don't have to go through the dry cleanse. There's no purgatory. Because this is what God has for us. And Peter wants to give to these people this sense of why it is we should bless God because of this work that God has done for us. Because God is not only the Father of mercies, but he is also the God of security. We are in the hands of a very great God and he is determined to hold us forever and to bring us to heaven itself. And that is why Peter can talk about the future. And most Aussie people can't talk about the future. They think that, you know, Jerry Packer may be sort of floating around afterwards, around uh, after his funeral in the sky. No sense of certainty what happens or when you die that's the end or no one knows. What an enormous contrast this is. There's meant to be an anchor point. And of course we need this anchor point because sometimes we wake up and you know, we've got issues we are concerned about things and we may have a conscience of things in the past and wish we hadn't done. We've confessed them, all those things. But a passage like this has been written 
give us this great sense of confidence about the question of the future. And therefore, that's the work of the Father. Our Father is the Father of mercies. And he is also a God who, when he makes a promise, unlike maybe sometimes politicians or other people can do, when God makes a promise, look, you can, you can, you can collect all your super fund and put it into that account because you know it's absolutely safe. It could not be safer. And you could not be safer. So what a great God we have. And the proof is the resurrection of Jesus. And, uh, and this great sense of this future focus. Because there are many people in the first century who were focused on other things. Same in the 21st century. Christians can be very distracted. But we need to, we need to get this, this right sort of focus in terms of our own thinking. The second thing we look at in this passage is the work of the Son. Because we know that the person of Jesus Christ it was for the sprinkling for the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Because God does this and God gives this because Christ has died for us. It wasn't the blood of the old covenant on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He changed the words of the Passover for the first time ever. They must have been startled to hear it. This was not the blood of the old covenant. This is the this is the blood of this is the blood of the new covenant. It's in my blood that all this and I think give this great emphasis to it. And so here we have in verses eight and nine an, a, a further sort of expansion of this short summary Paul Peter has given at the beginning of his letter in verse two. And so we look at that and we see what is the work of the Son in verse eight. Uh, sorry, I just uh, sorry, I just missed the two verses in verses six. Because it is important for us to see that for these early Christians that life wasn't all that easy. And God never promised his people that life would be a cinch in the present. And they're experiencing some uncomfortable things about being Christians. And we don't know in our Australian context. Uh, whether or not it's always going to be comfortable to be a Christian. In certain contexts, I know in the UK, you can't actually discuss other religions. There's now, as it were, uh, a legislation that's gone through that prohibits the discussion. And it was there when I was there also. So we didn't, we didn't discuss other religions. You said there are two religious systems, two of them done. Ours is one done on Good Friday, the rest are all about do. Let me tell you about the original done on Good Friday. So you could discuss the other religions in terms of their process, but you could never talk about them directly. And in the first century, things are not being easy. But this is what it said in verse 6. Even if, of necessity, you've been grieved by some of the difficulties of being a Christian. Because the problem in the first century if you were a Christian, you stood out like a sore thumb. Everyone went off to the temple to give incense and to show their loyalty to the emperor, all dressed up in lovely white clothes and wearing a garment. And you did. And not to be in conformity was a great problem in the first century. You had to have this conforming society to show your loyalty and to get all the benefits of Rome's concessions and things like this. So it's not a very easy thing. And therefore it's not promised that the Christian life would be certainly like a very quiet journey on the Pacific Highway. But an easy journey through life, that's not promised. But what happens is, even the present has a future. Because we're told that this testing of your faith, even the present, present difficult moments, which is more precious than gold that's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So even the tough times have a future to them. And when it is there's discrimination, or when even in terms of personal circumstances, Christians go through difficult times. We're told that when we stand on the other side, this will be seen to be to the praise and glory and honour of Jesus Christ, because God somehow put all this together. Sometimes suffering and difficulty 
Make us a much more empathetic person. Make us a more loving, and more, as it were, a person who reaches out to others. So even difficult times have a future. And that's why when we look at the tough times and the seasons of life we go through, times of joy and times of sadness, they do have a future. We stand on the other side, we'll be able to see how all that was woven together by God. And we'll be able to praise him. Praise him for the really tough and the really difficult times of life. Because that will be found to praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is what uh, Peter says about Jesus Christ. We've never seen him. And we still don't see him. We put all our trust in him. And we rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory because we are going to obtain the, the end result of our faith which is the salvation of us. And so who has done it? We haven't. All the other religions, the religion of do. <clears throat> I have to do it. No. This is something that's been done for us. And this is why the Christian person says the outcome of our faith and trust is indeed this great rescue and the certainty we have about heaven. So heaven is a wonderful place. As we stand on that side, we indeed will be full of joy that's inexpressible. I thought today, as we heard uh, the singing this morning, and I heard the ladies in the back seat in full throttle, this is really great, actually. But just about heaven is the business about people singing. They can't stop singing because this is the best moment of their lives to stand in heaven and to rejoice at all that has happened. I love uh, Handel's Messiah, and I get goose pimples when they sing Hallelujah and things like this. And I think that's heaven. It's going to be sort of all the time. There's going to be this great singing and rejoicing because we've got something to sing about. And that will be true in heaven also of the work of Christ because it's through the sprinkling of his blood, it's through his death that we are forgiven and we don't ever deserve it one bit. It is purely an act of mercy on the part of God. It's an act in terms that God has secured through the death of his son and this is for cleansing. Now the third thing we see, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Bible's there, it's for obedience and certainty. Now this is very important for us to see this. But the Christian person, we are told, it is through the sanctifying of the work of the Spirit that, that our salvation, this is how God achieves this. We are sanctified. We are made holy. But we're not made holy to be spoiled brats. Okay? We were saved to obey. And this is why when we come to Romans, it's very interesting that Romans 1.5 and Romans 16.26 says this, it's not about faith, it's about the obedience of faith. And Paul reiterates that twice in his letter to the Romans. So what is the epistle of the Romans about? It's not just about the salvation of God. It is that we were saved to obey. That's the purpose of the salvation that's come to us. And we have the same thing being said here. That this is the sanctifying work of the Spirit for the purpose of obedience. It has a sense of purpose. We were not saved to be brats. We were saved by God in this great work so that we're now we should live lives of obedience. Because you see, obedient lives, obedient lives are productive lives. They are beneficial to others. And that's why we're called to obedience as to what God's word says, so that life can work and others can be blessed. And the grace of God for many people in apparently in the first century was we've just been saved. We've got the swipe card in our back pocket or the, pocket or the guarantee that we have Roman citizenship. We've got this thing here and we'll just open all the doors. No. The purpose of this salvation was for this whole question of obedience. 
because God wants our lives to work according to the maker's manual. He made us. He knows how life works for us. And if we obey the culture, it will be dysfunctional. If we obey the word, our lives will work. So God is just not asking us to obey so we can sort of somehow get the impression of just being nice. No. The purpose of obedience is that we as Christians will be functional and we won't be a problem, we'll be a solution. And that doesn't always happen, does it? <clears throat> you know, just some of the great problems that occur when Christians decide, well, I'm going to do this anyway. We're going to sing Frank Sinatra's great song, I did it my way, and I don't care. He died singing that song, it's interesting. He died singing that song. I did it my way. Not exactly what you're going to do God. That's why we have been rescued by Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. It's the profession of obedience that God has done this. Because the great disaster that occurred, and we can see this disaster that spread across the newspapers. And if we listen to the news overseas at night time, we can't sleep. This world is a disastrous place. It's not a nice world at all. It's wicked. It's horrible. And it inflicts great tragedy on people's lives and ruins lives. That's our world. We need to wake up to the fact of the sheer wickedness of sin and how awful it is and what it does to people. How it was so destructive of children. You can't believe it when you read what's happening in the newspaper and across the television, across the media, all the way we get information. And we were saved because God wanted his people to now live according to his original plan. That's why he's rescued you. So that you can be a person who now is a contribution and not a liability. And that's what the Christian faith is about, this question of obedience. It costs nothing to become a Christian. Christ has done that the intention was that we should live a life of obedience and also a life of certainty. Because in verse 10, we're told, Now concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched, and they inquired carefully. They wanted to know who would be this great deliverer, who would be the great son of David. They wanted to know when, when this was going to be was going to happen. Do you remember how uh, John the Baptist, his daddy, when he was, when he knew it was going to happen, he wasn't just a proud father, he was prophesying. Because blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a mighty salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he wasn't doing this because he was a proud dad, he was moved by the Holy Spirit as to what the whole thing was unfolding. And so there was this future looking, future forward looking. Because the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. Because in the Trinity of God the Father, God the Son, the Spirit, these are the three persons. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. And so it is that the Spirit of Christ that was in them was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. Now that's very interesting because we have an amazing God. I'm sure I said this to you last time. If you turn to Amos chapter 3 verse 7, it's in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Joel, Amos, number 3, you discover something incredible about the God we have. Because we are told in Amos 3 7 that God does nothing. But first of all, he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. That's a very important disclosure. That in terms of the way that God unfolds things, he gives advance press releases. That's who he is. Amos, chapter 3, verse 7. It's just fallen out of your Bible, don't worry. You can chase it up later, okay? <clears throat> but Amos 3, 7, at least put the reference down. That's a very important statement. Because you see, we have a wonderful God. 
God wants us to know that when this amazing, amazing things come to pass, you flick over and say, where's the press releases in the Old Testament? Because God is the God, when it happens, he wants to give you and he wants to give me absolute certainty that this is not some fluke, this is not just someone's interpretation. God has already announced it. And so when it comes to pass, then we know. And we look up and we say, yes, of course. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The testament of our peace is upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Because hundreds of years before Jesus came, God wrote it up. God had a plan. And so we have a God who not only wants to give us certainty in terms of our own salvation, but when we turn to his word and read it, it's meant to give us increasing certainty. This is no fluke. He just didn't die because things went wrong in the Roman legal system. No, this was all part of God's plan. And you see, I look at parents sometimes, the way they help their children, wonderful parents, and not parents all the time being negative towards their children. They want to give their children confidence. And they want to, as it were, be confidence builders in the way that things go forward for their children. And God is no less, in fact, far more wonderful in what he has done. But the Holy Spirit, people inquiring through the Spirit of Christ, when, what these supplicants were, and in verse 12, it was revealed to them they were not serving their generation only. But what happened, we discover, that they were serving you. They were serving you in the present tense because of the God who wishes to give us total confidence with this work of salvation, this weird religion by first century standards, this strange thing called a crucified God. You don't put God in crucified, you do have the slaves. But here is a crucified God. And through the preaching of this, this is how God has secured the salvation of the world. And because it's a one-off, never ever in any other religious system or in the future would ever be the case, because it's a one-off, God wants to give people total certainty about this. And I get the certainty on the fact that it was revealed that they were serving our generation generation from Christ on. And in these things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about obedience and certainty. And it was the Spirit who actually caused the words to be written to the prophets. And what is more, it was the same Holy Spirit who preached the good news, the gospel to you who has been sent from heaven and this great message. Now look, you can't get much better than that. You can't get much more certainty than that of this amazing God, the Spirit who caused that. When you became a Christian, it wasn't just the preacher preached. No, it was. It was the Holy Spirit sent from heaven Directly for you. Me, yes, me. And I'm sure, I look back on my conversion, and I could see the amazing circumstances that God micromanaged for my dysfunctional life to bring me into the kingdom. And I knew it was a miracle. I knew that God somehow knew about the past, and God knew how it would be a confirming moment for me when I came to the church after I'd become a Christian and I'd been there 12 years before and I remembered the children's talk that back. the same minister was there and it was in the same area that I came to get away from my family concerts and to live with an aunt that knew and how it was even the night of my conversion I'm walking back almost in my past. And I know that this is not just some fluke. I know that this is indeed, this is something that's been preached to me by the Holy Spirit who has been sent from heaven. And the angels long to be part of that because they look at heaven and think, I wish we were doing this. 
It's such a fantastic thing that's happening. To stand in awe of our amazing God. And they look down over the clouds in their thongs, look down and they see what's going on in Australia, and they see the way in which the Lord himself, through the Spirit, is micromanaging. There are no accidents of birth in the kingdom of God. This is all this amazing work of this God who has prepared for us this such a great salvation now and gives us confidence that having done this, he's not going to sort of, as it were, produce a disappointment in the future. And this is why the Christian person can have this incredible focus on the future and to know the best is yet to be. The best. It may be great now, it may be not so great sometimes the seasons of life bring sadness and sometimes disappointment and, and, and sometimes grief for us. But then we look and think, the best is there. And that is why in the midst of the present circumstances, the Apostle Peter is wanting to get people to focus. Think about that great future because it puts the present in perspective in a very significant way. And it says to us, not that we hope it might happen, we hope that politicians will be able to manage things, it's not that sort of hope, but hope is this great confidence that the future comes to us from a God who never fails. And so this is the opening part of this great letter. But in verse 13 we see that there's a very important statement there, because the word therefore is there, and we have to ask what it's there for. Okay? Whenever you see, especially this is a, a double whammy, therefore, there's two that's used in the ancient language, but this really is a therefore, a very strong one. Therefore, it says, what's our response? Okay. It says, we are to gird up the loins of our minds. Second thing, we are to be sober minded and where to fix our hope on the grace that's coming to us. This is very good, and I can't ever think of this, but think of the Indian man in Singapore who carried his shop on his head and went up to Mark every Sunday morning and we drive past to see the Indian man going up to the market. The whole of his shop on his head. Now, it was important for him, there was a table, it was important for him but he didn't trip up, so he girded up his sarong and tucked it in his belt. Okay. So he did this girding up, and that's the same word that's used in the language, or language. We're to gird up the loins of our minds. Okay. So what has been happening? Peter has been girding up the loins of our minds by what he's saying in these previous verses. Okay. This is the reality about the future. Now, this is what you've got to put in your minds, okay? This is where, this is what's happened. This is what God has done for you. And what is more, you've got to be sober-minded. You can't drink gin and tonic and drive, okay? You can't drink gin and tonic, or whatever the uh, Indian drink was, and carry this thing on your head. It's going to fall over. And what's more, you can't keep looking around to see what's going. You've got your shop on your head. You've got to be looking, and the Indian man would be walking with absolute focus on where he's going. Because, you know, I've got a flat head, but I'm going to put this book on top of my head. But that makes a difference. Whoops. It shouldn't. It's the wrong flat part, okay? It should make a difference. The business about, I know if I'm going to walk with this on my head, that I've got to have a focus. Right? And that's what we are told, that we are to have this focus. We are to set our hope fully. In other words, don't go gawking around. Think about that future and focus your minds totally, fully, on the grace that's coming to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's why I talk about focus on the future. That's the opening part of 1 Peter. And we've got to keep doing that because we have a form of Christianity which is developed is about your best life now. You can even read a book called Your Best Life Now. I refuse to buy it. I just read 10% of it when I'm in the airport 
because you can do that legitimately and not break the law of copyright. <coughs> and I've looked through the whole thing, 10%, 10%, till I got 100%. And this book, <coughs> got to obey the law. But this book is is a very is a book about. Well, now you've got a future there, but you, you can have your best life now. Yeah. And it's all now about you know becoming a better you. Which I think is about becoming a better sheep, actually. That the New Testament's going to But these sort of books you can see, which are sort of people lapping up because I read your best life now. Yeah, I'd like all my best life now, but that's not what the New Testament teaches. And this is the great concern we have in an age of prosperity, then or an age of ease, that Christian people are thinking about, well, this is a promise. I've got this thing in my back card. Now I'm going to live it up and it's all going to be about me and I'm going to enjoy it. That's the false grace of God. It is false. And this is why Peter's written this. Because the true grace of God is not like that. And as we shall see later on, as we see later in our next session, <coughs> that we've got to follow through on this focus, and that's exactly what Peter does in this great letter that's been written. Therefore, we've got to sort of have that sense of direction. And when you know where you're going and you have a sense of direction, then you're not going to be distracted. And you're not going to be someone who's eating their hearts out because this is not happening, that's not happening. When life throws up its tough times, We've got to keep our focus. And this is why we've got to have developed this sort of, this monocular vision that one of our eyes is always fixed in that direction. And it's so easy for us, as it were, to be distracted. And for adversity to slay its thousands, but prosperity its ten thousands. And for Christians to become so worldly not so just consumed with it's all about me. And of course, they sing. Joel Austin's thing talking about that. It's all about me. If you think you can pack a stadium of 90,000 people, they're not always good at mathematics in these situations, 90,000 people there in Houston, you've been to Houston, with the original football scene, and you can pack all these people, and there's another 5 million people going to watch this on television because it's saying that personal pursuit of happiness is your constitutional right. And life, after all, is about your happiness. Because God never wants us to be happy. Never the New Testament happiness is always condemned. God wants us to be joyful. And joy comes in a very different way. So I think this is a very salutary letter because it shows even in the first century Within the first generation, there were some people who got it wrong. And God has caused this word to be written to us so that it's a corrective. And that this is the true grace of God, that it focuses in that direction on the future. And if we focus in that and realize that heaven is a wonderful place, we're going to see our Savior's face. Heaven is. And God guarantees. So there is no uncertain journey over the river Styx, as the ancients believed, in which you could be massacred or robbed. There's no question of uncertainty. I remember just recently, in fact, I preached at the funeral of a dear friend of ours, and it was and she was just full of the hope of heaven. She'd had rotten things happen to her. And indeed, even her own family, she'd been duped financially. It's a terrible story. And yet, there was no bitterness in her heart. She knew where she was going. And she had this great sense of confidence. And she died well. And she was a blessing to those who visited her. And I still remember this before my wife and went overseas. I went there to visit her on two occasions in one day. Yes, she was gone. But I tell you, there was amazing peace. It was the peace of God that was there in her own heart. And she'd been someone who'd focused on heaven. She'd been someone whose life was productive. 
and she was someone for whom obedience would matter. And it was. I just came away just so thrilled in my heart and having been so blessed as she prepared for work, this great time in which the Lord Jesus would come in the stretch limo as we learn in, in, in John's Gospel. He'd come again to receive her to himself. But where he was, that is where she was going. He died well, said Matthew. Live well, die well. In fact, I use the passage in 2 Peter chapter 1 about the two ways to live and to die. So, this is what we have this great sense of the focus on this amazing future that's coming to us. And we need to be reminded of it because we can lose the focus. And Peter wants us to be restored, and he wants people to understand that we have been saved to obey. And that will unfold as we go on in terms of our discussion. Let's pray. <coughs> Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful word that you've given to us. And Father, we hope that you would hope that you would our prayer is that you would help us to think about this great future that causes caused your servant Peter to be so full of joy unspeakable as he thought and as he wrote about the great future for your people. And so, Father, we ask that in an age where we can lose the focus, that you would write these words in our hearts and that we would be able to learn them and to learn what they are saying to us so that we indeed can be those who are ready for action, who are sober-minded, and who fixed our hope fully on the grace that is to come to us, not partially but fully. And therefore, Lord, we pray that you can live us and strengthen us in our understanding and our resolve and work in our hearts this weekend, we pray, so that as we leave the time in our conference here, in our camp, Father, we indeed may be overflowing with joy and with gratitude to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.